I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we look at the vice president's trip to the Indo-Pacific. We also cover what's happening in the solar industry and how that squares with the Biden administration's climate agenda. And Bill and Scott break down a USMCA rules of origin disagreement that could have long-term consequences for the North American automobile sector. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Hi, my name is Emily Benson. I am a relatively new research associate working for the Schulcher and International Business for Bill. Today, I am a guest host filling in for Jasmine Lim. So let's go ahead and get started. This week, the vice president is in the Indo-Pacific. She's pledged to deepen American economic ties in the region in the face of what has been called coercive action from Beijing. This includes strengthening supply chains in the region, potentially pursuing a digital trade agreement, and Harris offered to host the 2023 APEC meeting. This all comes as the U.S. and China have been sparring over freedom of navigation issues. So what do you make of these efforts to engage in the region? Well, let me say first, welcome to Emily. We're glad she's here. She's our guest host. We promise not to do guest hosting with all the drama of Jeopardy. On the question, I thought, you know, a lot of happy talk. There always is. A lot of good words. Two tangible things. Uh, You mentioned one of them, which was the offer to host APEC in 2023. That gets to be decided by the APEC members, which they'll address at the end of October at this year's APEC summit. Usually, if there's a volunteer, it gets agreed to because uh, that means somebody else has to pay, pay the cost. So I would expect that there will be some enthusiasm for the U.S. doing it. And it's a good sign. I mean, it's a sign that the United States wants to remain engaged in the region and wants to be re- remain engaged, particularly with APEC, uh, which I think is a, a good signal because it's a, such a broad-based group in the region. The other tangible thing that came up uh, at the, actually in Vietnam, not on our Singapore leg, was uh, the Vietnamese uh, decision to reduce a number of tariffs on U.S. agriculture products, including wheat, corn, and pork, I believe, are the three. Uh, Not a lot of details provided, but uh, also good news because that means more more market access for American agriculture with a country whose uh, trade surplus with us has been ballooning over the last few years significantly, due, I think, in significant part to uh, the Trump administration's efforts to get companies to leave China. And they they did leave China, but they didn't come back here. They went to Vietnam. And the result is there's been an increase in our trade deficit with Vietnam, an increase in some trade tensions with Vietnam, which don't seem to have come up in in this visit. But I think lowering the tariffs is, is going to be good. It's going to be good for the Vietnamese people that eat, which is, I think, all of them. And it's going to be good for our uh, for reducing our, our trade deficit. Beyond that, you know, happy talk, particularly with Singapore. Well, look, yeah, I, I think you're right. And I, I think it's worth re- reminding the people who listen to us regularly why APEC even matters. So first of all, what is APEC? APEC is, as our colleague Matt Goodman calls it, uh, four adjectives in search of a noun. It's uh, the, the adjectives stand for Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation. It was a group that dates back to, I think, 1989 or so, when uh, Pacific Rim e- economies trade ministers started to get together 
and, uh, and to sort of look for ways to manage cooperation. It started off with 12 members. It quickly expanded to 21, which is its current size. It's an unusual group of members because it includes Russia, which is, of course, a, a Pacific economy, just like the United States is, China, but also the economies of Hong Kong and Taiwan, or Ch Chinese Ta Taipei, as it's called in the group. Uh, also has a couple of relatively small members like uh, like Brunei and Papua New Guinea. But overall, it's uh, it's become it started off as a as a tra trade ministers gathering in 1993. Uh, the United States hosted and Bill Clinton invited the other leaders, President Clinton, and made it a leaders meeting ever since then. Also, uh, then President Obama hosted in 2011. So the, uh, the the 93 meeting was at Blake Island, Washington State and the uh, 2011 meeting was in Hawaii. At that point, there was great enthusiasm for the conclusion of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Everybody felt like uh, the U.S. was back in business. Well, that didn't happen for a lot of reasons we've discussed uh, earlier, but hope remains. Now, what I'm interested in watching is what happens uh, to an organization like APEC, which is entirely voluntary. It has no binding obligations of any sort. Everybody seems to have to agree to anything before anything gets done. And where, you, where you've moved from people who wanted to get along and deepen cooperation to economies in, in relative hostility toward one another, like the tension that exists between China and, and Hong Kong, China, Chinese Taipei, China, the United States. So we'll see if this is still the kind of organization that, that, that can do something. But in the meantime, a engagement's better than not. Isn't this the organization that makes all the presidents wear the funny shirts? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. There are many great stories about that. Uh, one of the axioms of politics is politicians don't, it's a Schumer story, don't sing, don't dance, don't wear a hat. And don't eat hot dogs at the Iowa State Fair either. Well, funny shirts apparently is not part of the story. Presidents don't like to wear them, but are in the situation where everybody else is doing it. So they have to come out with these shirts that are the best thing you can say about them is peculiar, I think. But it's a good thing that she went. But let's go back to what we've said before. I think what the Asian countries are looking for is something more tangible than a visit. The answer has been obvious for years, which is TPP or CPTPP. The current administration can't quite bring itself to say that uh, or to do that. And so they are dancing around trying to think of other things to do. And, you know, they're all welcome, but they're all small cheese compared to the big thing that they ought to be doing. I've recommended in the past and continue to recommend a very Trumpian rebranding uh, for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Look, NAFTA was the worst thing since stomach cancer for its entire existence, and we changed seven lines of it and called it USMCA, and it also all became a widely supported, brilliant achievement. So I don't, th I don't see any reason the same thing can't happen with the Indo-Pacific. It's just going to take some creativity and, and clarity of purpose on our part. We've we've left these countries standing at the altar once before so in the TPP. So time to get to work. Do you think if we'd called it the Trump-Pacific Partnership, it would have done better? Well, yeah, he was he was too too busy, you know, taking credit for killing it. But I think that's the, the opportunity for Team Biden is rebrand this thing and uh, make it what you needed it to be. Include the United Kingdom, which you don't seem to want to do a bilateral with and make it happen, make something happen. So who knows? Nobody listens to me anyway, so. <laughs> I listen to you, Scott.
Scott, I think one question that came up uh, during the visit this week was that the Chinese and Americans were sparring over freedom of navigation issues. Could you walk us through what that looks like and how freedom of navigation issues could stand to affect supply chains that have already been disrupted the last couple of years? Well, there's a very long history uh, of incursions and and testing that goes on uh, in in the South China Sea, China's uh, now discredited Nine Dash Line. We have a whole project at CSIS called the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative that tracks movements and potential areas of tension in the South China Sea. But freedom of navigation is a big deal. And really in the post-World War II entire 70 years plus, it's been the United States Navy that has guaranteed freedom, free passage and freedom of navigation throughout uh, the world, but particularly in that very busy, vital part of the commercial uh, enterprise of factory Asia, call it. So it's an issue that that has, has come up again, and is, the tensions are rising for a lot of reasons between the U.S. and China, and uh, the tensions with Taiwan are a part of that. There's ongoing, you know, forays into testing the will of the United States. I don't expect that to lessen by any means, and we'll just see what happens. There was a dispute uh, over the Spratly Islands, I believe it was, between Philippines and China taken to an international tribunal. The Philippines prevailed, but facts on the, on the water haven't changed. So The Chinese rejected the uh, decision that favored the Philippines, and the issue sort of remains there. I don't think, actually, that it's going to become uh, exactly an issue of freedom of navigation. I think the Chinese goal is they want to establish and have recognized their dominion over the over the South China Sea. It doesn't appear that they intend to actually interfere with anybody else's activities there uh, in terms of ships passing through or, or commerce going on. They just want everybody to recognize that it's their sea and not Vietnam's, not Indonesia's, and not any of the other. I think there's a total of nine claimants to various parts of it. And you know, on the one hand, I think that's unacceptable to other countries, but the actual commercial impact of all this, I think, is relatively, is relatively small. It could develop into a, you know, an international crisis. One of the things that I speculated about at the beginning of the year was the Chinese tendency to, to test a new president with some sort of quasi-dramatic event, you know, airplanes colliding uh, over the ocean or, you know, two ships coming perilously close together, some kind of crisis, just really to see what the new president would do. That doesn't seem to have happened this time. I think partly because they know Biden. Xi Jinping knows Biden from the days when they were both vice president. But the potential is always out there, you know, and sometimes you get uh, the ship commanders, not so much on the American side, but on the Chinese side, who will be a little bit uh, bolder than their instructions and uh, sail a little too close. So the possibility of those kinds of incidents is always there. But I don't really see it happening. Um, with one exception, I don't see it affecting a lot of commerce. The exception has been the Chinese ten tendency to uh, to arrest fishermen from other countries and take them back to Hainan and uh, essentially hold them hostage, which has been a real irritant with the Vietnamese, among others, but I don't think they're the only ones. Yeah, with everything that's going on and with the sharp diplomatic language, uh, there's always room for a miscalculation by somebody. 
Well, let's move on to a sunnier topic, if you'll excuse my pun, and that is this week a group of U.S. solar manufacturers filed petitions with the Commerce Department alleging that Chinese companies are evading anti-dumping and countervailing duty orders on solar panels and calling for duties to be extended to circumventing entities outside of China and countries like Vietnam, which you just mentioned, Malaysia, in Thailand. Uh, What do you make of this? And I think that this will ultimately be a decision that President Biden has to take. How does that process work? And what do you think he'll decide? Well, he won't have to take a circumvention decision, because that's all part of the dumping and countervailing duty law. And that's handled very objectively by, uh, I would say, by the Commerce Department. They'll determine whether circumvention has occurred. And if it has occurred, then they'll assess parallel duties on the products coming from these other countries to match what are all, what's already being assessed against, assessed against the Chinese. There isn't a, a presidential decision involved in that piece, but there's another piece going on at the same time. President Trump imposed tariffs under Section 201, which is called the safeguard provision. Uh, all WTO legitimate, by the way. This is the case where the Trump administration obeyed the rules, and the rules allow companies to part- to petition for import relief it's just on the grounds they've been injured. They don't have to prove anything unfair. They just have to demonstrate they've been hurt. But there, the International Trade Commission makes a judgment as to whether or not they've heard, been hurt and recommends relief. And there it's up to the president to decide what to do. In this case, the president granted it in uh, January of 2018, as I recall, uh, and it expires next uh, February. So under the rules, it can be extended. And so what has happened is that the solar manufacturers who complained in the first instance have come back and asked for the tariffs to be extended uh, beyond their the three-year the three lifespan. And that will be up to the president. Uh, In the first instance, the ITC gets to decide again whether injury is continuing or whether the companies would be injured anew uh, if the existing tariffs were removed. If they find affirmatively about that, then that goes to the president. And what's fascinating about both of these issues, I think, is it presents the administration with kind of a policy dilemma because part of their policy is let's convert to renewables. And that means let's have more solar uh, the consequence of the tariffs, both sets of them, the ADCVD and the safeguard tariffs, the consequence of the tariffs is to make solar more expensive, to make the, the, the modules and the panels more expensive, and to slow down the conversion process. On the other hand, particularly on the dumping and countervailing duty side, the government determined, you know, these products are being subsidized, uh, they're being dumped, the Chinese are engaging in unfair trade practices, Personally, I I think it's very likely that they're circumventing the law, and you can make a very strong case from a trade policy point of view that they ought to be punished and that the duties are appropriate to offset the damage that they're doing to the domestic industry. The other side is what I just said, though, that the consequence of offsetting that damage through higher tariffs is to slow down the conversion to renewable resources that the administration is in favor of. So this is why the president gets the big bucks. He gets to make the decision. Well, look, it's, it's important to recall that because this is a safeguard, it's about fairly traded products. So the, the subsidy, that's a separate issue and a separate decision uh, matrix. But, but the 2-1 tariffs are on fairly traded goods, which the United States doesn't make as competitively as China does. And so now the obligation for the American industry is to engage in restructuring to make itself more competitive. 
and we haven't heard much about what exactly they've done. Now, the other side of it, if you just look at this as a job standpoint, producing the panels is relatively few jobs compared to installing the panels. All right, there's many more installer jobs than there are assembly jobs in manufacturing panels. So the, the total jobs consideration is also, as Bill mentioned, solar panels are more efficient and lower cost. You have a higher volume and therefore more demand and uh, more panels installed by more installers. So the total jobs question, it has to, has to factor in downstream installation as well as domestic production. And uh, just like there are more Volkswagen mechanics than there are Bentley mechanics, you have more low-priced solar panels being installed by installers than if the panels are high-priced. So it'll be worth watching, but we'll find out a lot of conflict between trade policy and environmental goals as time goes on. Yeah, I think it might be worth noting that solar panels in the U.S. are 50% more expensive than the global average. So I think that it really will put the Biden administration in a tough spot when it comes to squaring its trade and climate agendas. Yes, China installs more solar panels than any other country. Not surprisingly, but yeah. The other factor to take into account is the Build Back Better issue and the administration's reshoring and sort of uh, supply chain resiliency plan. Are they going to decide that, that uh, the solar industry is a critical industry uh, and that we need to have a, a U.S. presence? This will be an interesting case. I, I wouldn't say it's critical technology in the sense that, that you know, military-related technology is or that, or that semiconductors are, and it's made in lots of different places. But if you decide that it's an essential part of your economy and you want to have a domestic manufacturing capability, then you're going to have to take steps to enable that domestic capability to, to exist. And as uh, Emily just pointed out, it, it can exist at much higher prices. And then the consumer pays the consequence of that. Well, I think that uh, is a nice segue into our next topic, which also involves North American supply chains. This week, the Mexican government has requested consultations with the U.S. regarding different interpretations of the USMCA's automotive rules of origin. Mexico wants to take a more flexible route in determining rules of origin, but the Biden administration uh, is trying to raise the threshold. This seems kind of like a minute detail uh, in USMCA, but why is it so consequential for the North American auto industry? This gets us into the weeds. Uh, Scott, you want to do the weeds or you want me to do the weeds? Let me start because this was a criticism that many people, including me, made of the Trump administration when they were when they're conceiving of and negotiating the auto rules. They had a very specific goal in mind, which was increased domestic content in automobiles. But I always found it a failure of imagination because there were many key people in the Trump administration, including the Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, who had this strange idea that there, was a, there were American cars. There was a U.S. auto industry of sorts. And I think that that's where the imagination failed. And as they got into micromanaging what, what it meant to be an American car in their mind, that's where they went off, off the rails. Because in fact, there are roughly 20 global companies competing in the global automotive market, which is about a seven, 70 million, seven zero million unit per year, cars and trucks, essentially. So that's the size of the prize. All those companies are, are engaged in global manufacturing, marketing, and development. Two of those 20 companies have American headquarters. So General Motors and Ford 
are the two companies with U.S. headquarters. It used to be Dodge Chrysler was U.S. headquartered. It is no longer. It was acquired by Italians and became Fiat Chrysler and then was merged with French car companies and now is a, is a Dutch headquartered firm called uh, Stellantis, I believe it is. So there are, there are two U.S. auto companies. That, they call themselves the Detroit Three, but two U.S. headquartered companies. And it's in the interest of those firms to become globally competitive. What Mexico, I think, is reflecting in their comments about the USMCA rules is that making a car that meets the American rules, the USMCA rules specifically, which were about U.S. job content, makes their global production and their, their supply to global markets less competitive. And I think that's true for across the range of manufacturers. So I think I think it's clear they micromanaged the industry, but they, for me, they chose the wrong goal because they, they thought about the industry in a way that only existed in their mind. Well, Scott's given the big picture, which is, I think, the right big picture. That leads it to me, though, to get into the weeds. And I do want to take a minute to explain what what the particular debate is about. Perhaps arguably the only significant thing that USMCA did that was different from NAFTA is it adjusted the auto rules of origin and it changed the content rules in ways that were deliberately intended to bring more manufacturing jobs back to the United States. That was the point. And as I think I've said before, we at CSIS did a study of that and concluded that the change rules would in fact do that. But the cost was exactly what Scott described. It would make the industry less competitive globally, although, but it would bring some jobs back here. This issue developed, though, because of different interpretations of, of a particular question, which is known amongst the rules of origin walks as the roll-up issue. So the various, uh, there are multiple uh, content requirements but uh, there's a couple that require 75% regional content, one for a set of parts, and then one is called the super core uh, rule, which is sort of critical engine components, has to have 75% regional content. The question has come up over how do you count those products? And what, what NAFTA did and what the auto companies thought that USMCA was going to do, and I think there's some evidence that the intent was to do was was to say that if a product, a subcomponent or a component or a part meets the 75% content standard, then that component is treated as 100% within the region. It might make the 75% standard, which barely, which means it has 25% foreign content, but it's counted for further purposes once it's incorporated into an automobile. That component is counted as 100% if it meets the 75% threshold. That's called rolling it up. And that's what NAFTA did. And the auto companies were under the impression that that's what USMCA was going to do as well. I gather this is, it gets very complicated. You know, who said what, when? And there's a, a, a track record that is, I, I think, more or less definitive in that direction, but not entirely. And I, I consulted earlier today with someone who was deeply involved in this issue, who said that, you know, what happened was that as this always, as they were developing regulations for this, the CBP, Customs and Border Patrol, which had not been involved in the negotiations, raised the question of how to count this stuff. And they raised the question that there's an alternative interpretation, which is not to roll up to 75% and leave the part and component at 75 or 80 or whatever it was and not roll it up to 
consider it 100. That, of course, would complicate the auto, the manufacturers' lives because they would have to do other things to produce more domestic content. So that was what CBP thought was the right interpretation. That ended up going all the way up to Ambassador Lighthizer, personally, who decided to go with CBP, CBP uh, because that was the tougher interpretation, which in effect uh, left all of the auto companies, A, surprised because they were expecting a different outcome, and up the creek because they had made their plans based on a different outcome. Now, the Biden administration has continued the Lighthizer interpretation and has declined to change it, which is why we have a dispute settlement process underway. Because the, the Mexican argument, which I think the Canadians will agree with, is that's not what we negotiated. We negotiated a roll-up provision, and you're denying that. So this is likely to go to dispute settlement, and we'll see how it, it turns out. It's going to create uncertainty in the automobile industry. It's going to force them to put their plans on hold while they wait and see how this comes out. And it could force them, if, it, if the interpretation that the U.S. is currently using sticks, it could force them to change their, their production plans in, uh, in Mexico, all of which would be probably uh, certainly a, a minimum annoyance to them and may end up being a, a real problem for the uh, the trilateral relationship. So it's one of these weedy little things that, you know, you're, you'd like to think got taken care of in the negotiation. And then when they start dealing with the fine print and writing the regulations afterwards, you discover maybe they didn't. And the debate over whose footnote prevails is coming at a moment when the auto industry is going through a dramatic transformation to electric vehicles. So it's just the moment when you don't need this kind of distraction and uncertainty. So I wish him luck. So would you say that the Biden administration is also, as you said, Scott, micromanaging the situation? And does this represent Trump trade 2.0? Or can we expect a new strategy from Biden? No, I think there's a bipartisan 50-year program of micromanaging the auto industry, going back to the original corporate average fuel economy, the original safety uh, regulation that came out of Ralph Nader's famous book, Unsafe at Any Speeds, and it's a long tradition of trying to achieve results in safety and efficiency in that industry uh, that, that had a very heavy hand, top-down to, top government approach to it. So this is just continuing more of the same. Well, I don't disagree with that, but this is not about safety. This is really about protection and where jobs are going to be located. Well, maybe we can say that this week we discussed safety and protection. <laughs> so I think that concludes this week's episode. Uh, thank you to both of you and everyone who listened in. Thanks, Emily. Thank you, Emily. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.